We are in Genesis chapter 12. Abram is probably the second most important person in the Bible. Now, I understand that's a pretty broad or pretty brave, brave statement, but I believe he's probably the second most important person in the narrative of God's interaction with human beings. Number one would be Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God, our Redeemer. Paul called him a man of faith. And the fact is, Abram is the father of us, of us all who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. Two chapters of Galatians are all about how righteousness was imputed to him by faith, not by works. Abram got the most print in Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter. He got the most words, the most verses dedicated to him. That chapter that says, without faith it is impossible, please God. And Abram became a perfect example for us what faith looks like. The first 11 chapters of Genesis covered a period of about 2,000 years, give or take. The next 14 chapters of the book of Genesis are going to talk about the story of the man named Abram who becomes Abraham. And in those 14 chapters, we're only going to cover about 100 years. God had promised Abram that he'd become a great nation. And through that nation, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This man's story, Abraham's story, is so important to understanding the Old Testament and God's plan of redemption for you and me. Abram shows us what true faith does. Abram shows us what true faith does. And when I started writing these notes, I had five points what true faith does. We'll get through one of them this morning. Genesis 12, verse 1 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Number one, I want us to consider the call. Consider the call. Last Sunday morning in the message, we read Stephen's defense before the Jewish Sanhedrin regarding the false charges brought against him. They, people who were very upset about the fact that he was preaching Jesus, and more than that, that there was miracles taking place when he did preach Jesus, they accused him of speaking against the holy place and against the law. In other words, speaking against the temple and speaking against Moses' law. The scripture says it was lies, but that didn't stop them from going to court. Sound familiar? Uh, the God, he said the God of glory appeared to Abram or Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Leave your country and your people and go to the land I will show you. Of course, everyone on the Sanhedrin 
agreed with Stephen's opening remarks to his defense. They had been taught this about Abraham in the synagogues from the time that they were born to that moment in time. The glory of God appeared and called Abraham to make an incredible decision. Notice this, God initiated the relationship. God initiated the relationship. Abram, through the line of Noah's son, that the Messiah was prophesied to come from. This, the family line that, that, that had been fearing God since the beginning. But by the time Abram comes on the scene, the family has become idol worshipers in Mesopotamia. Last Sunday, we talked about the fact that they most likely were worshiping the moon god Nana, who seems to have been the number one deity of choice in Ur. But one day, God encountered the man Abram. He saw something of the glory of God that changed the whole course of his life in a way that has been preserved for all times. You remember the first time you caught a glimpse of the glory of God to the point that it changed the course of your life? I do. It was a long time ago, but I still remember. It's still very vivid in my mind. God initiated the relationship And God initiated that relationship by grace. By grace. Relationship with the living God is always about grace. The Bible is very clear. We are all sinners. Every one of us. There's none righteous. No, not one. But as I read the Bible... There were those chosen by God to do great exploits, not because they were perfect, but because they had a heart to pursue God, a heart that desired to please. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord because he was a righteous man and walked with God. David was chosen to be the king to succeed Saul as the king of Israel because he was a man after the heart of God. God did not choose Abram because of who he had been. God chose Abram because of who he had become. Let me repeat that because that's true about Every one of us. God did not choose Abram or Abraham because of who he had been. He chose him for who he would become. We too, by God's grace, have been chosen. We too, by God's grace, have been chosen. On his last night, with the men that Jesus had called to be the apostles to lay the foundation for the church that Jesus is building, referred to as his disciples. It was the 12, and then it became the 11 when Judas betrayed him. 
Jesus clearly spoke a truth that appears over and over and over in Scripture. In John 15, 16, he said to those men, and he says to you and me today, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Jesus said in John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. In Deuteronomy, as Moses is speaking the oracles of God to the Israelites before they go into the land of Canaan, God, through Moses, said, I didn't choose you because you were the greatest nation. I didn't choose you because of anything but this. I loved you. I loved you. I loved your father, Abraham. And I've chosen to use you to express who I am to the whole world. Each one of us today who's here who knows that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, you've been born again because of His grace. You didn't find Him. He found you. No one is saved by works. No one is saved by their status in life. I'm not saved because my dad was Pastor Giles. He couldn't save one of us. Only Jesus can. There will be no one in heaven who will be able to boast about getting there on their own merit. You have been called by God and chosen, chosen to live a fruitful life in terms of kingdom purpose. Kingdom purpose. Let us see. God commanded Abram to leave behind his past. He commanded him to leave behind his past. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. That's verse 1. He said, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land I will show you. This call, this command, is intense in its level of sacrifice involved. And there's an increasing level of sacrifice with each part of the command. He starts out, go from your country. Go from your country. Now, what I've read in the past three or four weeks as I've been searching and researching this particular passage of Scripture is at that particular time, Ur was a very desirable place to live. Right on the Euphrates River, right close to the Tigris River, very luxuriant land. In fact, they believe that before the Euphrates changed its course, that it was a port city. But the Euphrates kept dumping silt, and just like New Orleans was built by the Mississippi River, 
the city ended up being almost 100 miles away from the, the sea. But in the day that he lived, it was a luxuriant land. The soil produced great crops of corn and date palms. There was apples and grapes, pomegranates, growing in abundance. And there was water in abundance. It would appear that Abraham had lived there his whole life. He would have had property. He would have had a level of comfort and security. And God said, I want you to leave your country. To go where? To go he didn't know where. Go to a country that I will show you. I don't think that would have been an easy decision. As far as we know, his relationship with the Lord at that point in time was brand new. He'd been there 75 years putting down roots relationally, financially, occupationally. The roots would have been very deep. Vicki and I are here today doing what we're doing because on Thanksgiving Day, I think it was 1988, I got a phone call. A phone call from Daryl Shore, who I knew, we were not very close, but I knew him. I played ping pong against him at youth camp when I was a teenager, and he didn't want any teenagers beating him at any game. <clears throat> but he called me, and he, and he said, uh, I'd like you to go with me to Palmdale, California, and work alongside of me. We'll do some construction work and we'll try to build this church back up. And uh, it meant leaving the city that both of us have been born in. It meant leaving all of our friends and all of our family. And it meant going to the state that I said I will never go to <laughs> unless God tells me to. He said, go from your kindred, was the second thing. Go from your country, go from your kindred. Leave behind everything that meant acceptance, prosperity, and security. Above all, security. Being in proximity with your clan, that provided all of those things. The culture of that day would have been for the family, extended family, to, you know, they were very family-oriented and would have been hanging really close together. Our sec secularized society today promotes individualism, and we've seen the fragmentation of families itself, every man for himself. But in that part of the world, and even to this part of the, to this, the family was your place of security, your place of strength working the land together, sharing the good times and the bad times of life was a, a, a source of great security. Abram, leave behind your kindred. One of the most difficult things for Vicki had to do with that very aspect of it. Here, we were surrounded by family. All my siblings, all her siblings, our parents, and all the friends that we had made 
in the 30-some years. Of, we were in our mid-30s when this call came. We were moving to California. She knew no one. She had met Daryl and Marette Shore one time before Daryl would, would seal the deal that he really wanted me to come. He said, I want you to meet your wife. He'd never met her. So we went to Vancouver and had breakfast, and she was put on trial, and I don't know if she knew that or not, but um, they wanted to make sure that, and it ended up they like her better than like me. So they invited us to go. So it was Vicki and I and Sean and Angela. They were in middle school and grade school. Just being the four of us, 1,100 miles away from home, became a source of great... Um, she's not in this service, is she? The only time, or maybe it was the first time, that I'd ever seen her depressed. She's not the kind of person, the type of personality to experience depression. Her sanguine personality, she can have fun anywhere, but she felt so separated from all of her friends. She made new friends, but when an opportunity came to come back here, I had to stay to finish a job she got in the U-Haul truck that we had loaded up, and she didn't even say goodbye to me because she was so... <laughs> After 18 months being separated. For Abraham and Sarah, it would have been worse. There was no postal service. There were no telephones. There were no airplanes to get on to make a trip back home to get a fix with the family. Not only that, he said, I want you to go from your country and go from your kindred, go from your father's house. Go from your father's house, his immediate family. Leaving behind some of the clan might not have been so hard. I'll just let you think about that. But leaving behind his father, the immediate family, that was going to be a little more difficult. Again, support, protection. They were going to leave everything they knew. The possibility was very great that they would end up somewhere where they did not know the dialect or the language. They were going to be outsiders. They were going to be foreigners. They were going to be aliens in the land. Having a few family with you would have made it a whole lot easier. Now, it is interesting that when they did leave, Ur. They had not left alone. Abram's dad and Abram's nephew and family decided to join them on this new life adventure. But before it was all said and done, they were all separated from the picture. Terah, Abram's dad, died in Haran, a place where they had settled while they were on their journey. Later in Canaan, Abram and Lot had to make the decision to divide their, their clans because of the battles going on between their people. My people aren't along with your people. Your people, in any way, they divided. Why would God ask Abraham to make this threefold sacrifice? Why would he ask him to leave 
his country, his kinsmen, his family? Was it just for the sake of sacrifice? I believe it was necessary for his spiritual growth. It was necessary for his spiritual growth. Being in the environment of Ur would not have been conducive to nurturing of his relationship with the Lord. Having his family with him may have kept him from progressing in faith and dependence upon God. It was necessary for that he make those sacrifices. It was necessary for us because Abraham becomes a model for us of what life-changing faith in God looks like. This ongoing journey and the process that he went through. Then the fourth thing that God told Abraham when he called him, go until I tell you you have arrived. Just go until I tell you you have arrived. I've looked and I haven't found it yet. I haven't found any place in the Bible narrative, New Testament, Old Testament, where God told Abram where he was going to go before he got there. He did not know he was going to Canaan. Now, I realize there's more than a few details that we do not have, but Moses wrote about it and made it very clear Abram was not told his destination. John Calvin put it this way when writing about this moment in Abraham's life. And this is the way he paraphrased it. And this is John Calvin. I command you to go forth with closed eyes and forbid you to inquire where I'm about to lead you until, having renounced your country, you shall have given yourself holy to me. It was about giving himself holy to God. True faith believes the bare word of God. Here's the one point that we get to today. True faith believes the bare word of God. Abraham was asked, commanded, if you will, just to take God at his word, nothing more. Leave Ur and go to a place that I will show you. The book of Hebrews 11 chapter says, Abraham obeyed and he went out not knowing where he was going. He took God at his word, leaving behind his country, his kindred, eventually his father's household. And because he believed God, because he put his faith in what God said, it was counted to him as righteousness. The call to forsake all is not just an Abram thing. Letter D, Abram's call is very much like the call of the gospel. It is very much like the call of the gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke the Synoptic Gospels, all record one of Jesus' teachings to the crowd. Synoptic means they all tell about the same stories. Scholars believe that Mark wrote his, his Gospel first and that Matthew and Luke, they used it as a, as a pattern 
and they kind of enlarged and gave, Matthew gave some of his own stories. Luke gave stories from all the people that he interviewed while he was traveling with the Apostle Paul. In Luke chapter 9, Luke's account of this one, Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Mark wrote, forfeits his soul, and then he goes on to ask, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Matthew put it this way in chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There's a call to leave behind anything that would keep me from wholly committing myself to trusting God. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 is a long chapter and it covers several days. You can read it in one point it says eight days later and, and then a, another few words after that. And we read from Luke chapter 9 and verse 25 that must deny himself, take up his cross. Later on in the chapter, Jesus and the disciples are, are on the road going towards Jerusalem. And as they're walking, someone says to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus responded in a way to let him know that they needed to count the cost to what they were saying. He said, foxes have their holes, birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to call his own to lay his head down. Then the text goes on to say this in verse 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury the de their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And that seems pretty harsh, doesn't it? Let the dead bury the dead, don't worry. Well, there's two ways that this context has been explained from a Jewish point of view. One is that the man was waiting for his dad to die so that he could take care of his responsibilities. He hadn't died yet. The other is that his dad had died, and the Jewish custom was that they would keep the bones in a certain container for one year, and at the end of one year, then they would go and bury them. And so Jesus reads through this and says, that's really not what holding you up. Let the dead bury the dead. Come and preach the gospel. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is not against family. 
In fact, Jesus created family. The very first, it all starts with family. Husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are commanded to respect their husbands. There's supposed to be this family love. And, and, and here's the promise that he made in Luke chapter 18 to those who said, we've sacrificed these things. What's the reason? He said to them in verse 29, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left his house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time in the age to come eternal life. In this time and the age to come. It's a matter of putting him first. Loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The message of the gospel and even the message of Abram to leave country, kindred, and father is not so much a call for separation from as it is a call for separation to. It's not so much a call to separate yourself from all of these things as it is a call to separate yourself unto Jesus. Set yourself aside. Make yourself holy. Making holy, that's to set it aside for a purpose. Set yourself separated to God that He becomes the Lord of your life. He's number one priority. In Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas were in jail. Remember in Philippi, they're casting the demons out of that, that young girl and taking away somebody's livelihood because they used her to tell people's fortunes and charge them. And while they're praising God at midnight, there's an earthquake, a supernatural earthquake, that the only damage done is the doors are swung open and the locks on the chains are broken. The, the jailer comes in and, and he pulls out his sword to commit suicide and Paul said, no, 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 no. We're all here. Nobody's left. He lights the lamps and then he falls at their feet. Then he takes them in the other room and he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? You remember what Paul said? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your family. Believe on the Lord Jesus. I think that's very significant that he said, Lord Jesus. You've heard me quote it, read it, put it in the notes. I don't know how many times in the past year. I hope you've memorized this verse. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You have to confess that he's more than the Son of God. The de demons believe he's the Son of God. You have to confess him as Lord as CEO, as the, my king, my king. I love to sing the chorus that we sing, and the bridge just said, in, Jesus, you are my king. Amazing love, 
How can it be? Jesus, you are my king. You are my king. One of the ways that I manifest the fact that I believe he's my king is I obey the bare word of God. I obey what the commandments say. I do what God has told me to do. The gospel calls us to rest all our hope on the word of Christ and nothing else. To rest all of our hope on the word of Christ and nothing else. When we commit ourselves to follow Jesus Christ, we are promised a whole bunch of things. But I'll tell you what you're not promised. You're not promised an easy life. You are not promised there will not be sickness or trouble or disasters come your way. What you are promised is that when sickness and disasters and and trouble comes, that He will go with you, that He will show you the way, that He will never leave you. We are guaranteed that if we keep walking with Him, we will have an eternal home in a place where there are no more troubles, no more struggles, no more tears, no more sickness, no more darkness. But between here and there, we are called to trust Him. Go to a land that I will show you. Follow him step by step. Deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. Secondly, I want us to consider the promises that God made to Abraham. Consider the promises. And just in the way of foreclosure, not foreclosure, in the way of letting you know what's coming, we're going to come back to these verses next week too. Disclosure is the word I'm looking for. It's not in my notes. Disclosure. Verse 2 says this, And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. If you count the words in verse 1, where he said, I will show you the land, five times God says, I will. Five times. In those five times, there are seven blessings that he pronounces upon Abram and the families of the earth through Abram. Some of these blessings that God speaks over Abram or Abraham, he never realizes in his life because they could not be fulfilled until Jesus Christ came and accomplished God's plan of redemption. If you read chapter 11 of Hebrews, the faith chapter, and all these people, God told them to do this, they did this, they did this, they were faithful, they lived by faith. When you get down to verse 40, it says, all these, though commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised since God was providing something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Promises that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ that caused us all to be blessed. Letter A, God promised he would make Abram a great nation 
even though the circumstances look to be just the opposite. Abram, leave the land of Ur, go to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. They were childless. More than childless, they were barren. She had biological issues that prevented her from conceiving and having children. Now, I have no idea what scientific knowledge they had of the reproductive process. But at the age of 75 and 65, they've already seen their peers have many children. In fact, Abram's older brothers already had children and died, and Lot was his nephew goes along with him. As you read the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, folks in that culture, if you couldn't get pregnant, that was a very bad thing. It was as if God had cursed you. But to this childless couple, God said, I will make of you not a great family, I will make of you a great nation. A group of people with land, a language of their own, and a government. I will make of you a great nation, which will have influence among the other nations. Not just a great family, not just, but a great nation. There was no evidence to prove it at that point in time. But the Bible tells us Abram believed God. Letter B, God promised to make Abram's name great. He promised to make Abram's name great. Remember what we read about the Tower of Babel back in chapter 11? Their plan was, come, let's build a tower and make a great name for ourselves. Abram received what never really comes by self-serving effort. God endowed him with a great name, a royal name in some ways. God promised him a little later in the journey, when you get down to Genesis chapter 17, verse 6, he said this to him, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. I will make of you great nations. Not only was there the nation of Israel that came from Isaac, when Ishmael was kicked out, God said to Hagar, it's going to be okay. I will make of him a great nation. In verse 16 of Genesis 17, God promised Sarah that she would be the mother of kings. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And while there's a whole long line of kings that came down through their family line that ruled over Israel and then Judea when the tribes split, two great names in that list, David, came from that list, came from that family. The one whom God said, David, of your offspring, there's going to be one who will sit on the throne forever. And who was that? 
Jesus himself. And Philippians said that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Better see, God promised to bless those who blessed Abram and to curse those who dishonored him. God promised to bless those who blessed Abram and to curse those who dishonored him. Verse 3, I bless those who bless you and him who dishonor you, I will curse. The blessings in this verse and the next verse are global blessings. By that mean, the blessings are, are for other people. There are blessings that apply to people and how they treat Abraham and his family. To dishonor Abram means to disdain or treat lightly or to look down on, to treat with contempt. If you want to know what it means, just look at what much of the culture is doing against the Jews today. As we read the story of Abram, we will see this blessing played out. Those whom bless you, I will bless. Melchizedek, Abimelech, were both blessed by God because of the way that they treated Abram, or Adam, or Abram, excuse me. As time went on, the blessings passed through the generations of Abram. The family of the Canaanites, nations, the Canaanite nations who opposed Abraham and his children, the Israelites, they were wiped off the face of the earth. They were cursed. When I read the promise to Abraham of blessing and cursings, I think of what Paul wrote for you and I in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Today, all over the world, the church of Jesus Christ is under attack. Read the letter I put in there from George C. in Bulletin today. The church of Jesus Christ is under attack. Satan is using false religions to attack culture to attack the church. He's using deceit and lies to try and stop the church of Jesus Christ from taking back what he's already stolen. But those who dishonor the church of Jesus Christ will pay the price. They will be cursed by Almighty God because he's the only God. Now here's an important verse. Galatians 3.29 if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Are you in Christ? You're heirs of the promise. Those who bless you, God will bless. Those who dishonor you, God will take care of them. He asked you to pray for them, to love them, and put them in his hands. Everybody said amen. amen. God promised to bless all the families of the earth in Abram. He promised to bless all the families of the earth in Abram. 
In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abram was the father of the nation that ultimately brought the Savior of the world into the world. And now whoever calls on the name of the Lord, that is Jesus, shall be saved and have eternal life. Paul put it this way in the third chapter of Galatians, verse 8 and 9. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Did you catch that? God preached to Abraham the gospel, the good news. In you shall all the nations be blessed. Some 4,000 years ago, in the land that was spiritually corrupt and dark, God revealed himself to Abram and proclaimed the gospel. God was going to provide the possibility of his blessing upon the whole world. For God so loved not just the Jews. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God's sovereignty meets man's free will. It might seem like I turned a quick corner, but I've got to wrap this up because it will be lunchtime soon and breakfast is ready. God's sovereignty meets man's free will. I don't know if you noticed when we started this morning, point number one was consider the call. God appeared to Abraham, called him to follow him. Abram responded to the call by embracing the grace of God and obeying what God asked him to do. And then it wasn't very many paragraphs later that, that I changed the word from call to chosen. I said that we too have been chosen by God's grace to experience his salvation and fulfill our divine purpose. But before we were chosen, there was a call. In Matthew 22, it was Tuesday of what we call Holy Week. On that Sunday, Jesus had entered Jerusalem in what is called the triumphal entry. On Monday, Jesus cleared the temple of the money changers and the vendors. On Tuesday, he was in the temple courts for the purpose of teaching. On that Tuesday, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, were there to try to discredit Jesus publicly. They came with numerous tests, trying to figure out the best way to eliminate him. They wanted to kill him. Normally, there was not a lot of agreement between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But on this topic, there was unity. We have to get rid of Jesus. He is upsetting our whole way of life and our theology. I want to read to you a very important parable that Jesus spoke to the crowds so that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those people who thought they were so religious could hear it. Verse 1, he said, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast to his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. 
Again, he said, Other servants saying, Shall those who are invited see I prepare my dinner? My ox and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they pay no attention. One responds, another decisions. While the rest seized the servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. Now, in another passage of Scripture, Matthew 23, he says to these people, You have killed the prophets. And this parable, he's saying the same thing to The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murders and burned the city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. When the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. In Luke 19, you can read the story of Jesus' complimentary. For Jesus, it was not really a moment of trial at all. In reality, his heart was broken to the point that he was sobbing. Tears of grief, just weeping, because he had come from heaven with a call to the Jewish people. Believe in me, and you'll have eternal life. Believe in me. I've come to save you. I'm the one that you've been looking for for 4,000 years. And they rejected him. And he wept because he could see into the future that that city of Jerusalem was going to be annihilated. Women, children, babies... We're going to be annihilated. It was all going to be destroyed. And he wept because they did not recognize the day of his visitation and the fact that he loved them. So it's with that broken. Christ himself on the cross. God is calling every man every woman, every boy, and every girl to come into the kingdom of God. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, Jesus crucified for our sins, Jesus risen from the dead, with victory over sin, death, grave, and the hell. To be chosen, I must put my faith in Jesus alone for my salvation. I must put my faith in Jesus alone for my salvation. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, 
the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Abram made a choice to do whatever God asked him to do. He believed the word of God. And he showed his faith by what he did. This morning, the Father's calling for souls to make a choice. To do what I call the ABCs of salvation. Letter A, admit. Admit that I'm a sinner. Admit that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. The propensity for the human being is to look at other people and say, compared to them, I'm pretty good. God's got to love me. I don't care how good you are. The Scripture says there's none righteous. No, not one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who admit, God, I need you. I need you. I admit that I'm a sinner, and then I declare that I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he is. He is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross and that his death made the atonement for my salvation. His blood is able to wash away all of my sins. And I believe that not in my head, but I believe it in my heart, in the places where I make decisions where my free will that he gave me chooses. I'm going to believe in Christ. I'm going to believe what he said. And then I'm going to commit my total life to follow Jesus. I'm going to commit my life to follow Jesus. I'm going to make him the Lord of my life. We read if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. I keep coming back to this, and I know some of you think, when's he going to preach a different message? One of the reasons I keep coming back to this is I see more and more people who think because I prayed the prayer and said, Jesus, I believe you died for me, that they're going to make heaven. They don't want to do the deny yourself and take up the cross. They won't want to obey the word of God. They think that grace covers it all. God's grace saves us, but God's grace also enables me to live in victory over sin. And it calls for a choice on my part. Abraham obeyed the Lord. That's what faith is all about. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If I admit that I'm a sinner and I believe in my heart that Jesus Christ is my Savior and I commit myself to Him and make Him the Lord of my life, you know what the promise is? Whoever has the Son has eternal life. Whoever has the Son 
has eternal life. 